Well, uh, the good weather and the longer days means two things. Number one, it means the cycling season has started. Number two, it means you're going to get lots of cycling-related illustrations in, in sermons going forward. And here we go. Here's the first one. This week, there was a comical uh, race. Well, it wasn't comical, but it finished in a comical way. There was a tour in Greece this week. Uh, none of you have seen it because you're not quite as boring as me. But at the end of the race, uh, something quite spectacular happened. There's a chap leading out front. 190 kilometers, these guys have been hammering it in the boiling heat through Greece and the dust. He's uh, out to the front, it's a, a bunch sprint finish at the end, so they're all sprinting at it, like busting a gut as they go. And he's just out in the front, he, he throws himself over the line, he's beating the guys next to him, throws his arms up in the air in a victory, it loses his balance, his, his seat falls off, and he just falls in a complete mess on the floor. Uh, that's slightly comical. What's more comical is that he didn't realise that there was a guy two minutes ahead of him who'd already finished the race, and this guy who fell on a, a heap on the floor celebrating had actually come second. And in cycling, second means nothing. No one remembers who comes second. Here's the problem for that guy. He couldn't see what was up ahead. He was just so focused in the moment and what was going on in front of him that he kind of lost sight of really what was going on in the bigger picture. What he could have done was, you know, a view from one of the helicopters that's over above that gives a real bird's eye view, helps him see the big picture so he could see really what was going on and save himself the embarrassment. And quite often we find we come to passages in in Scripture that are, are just like that, that we can maybe tease a few helpful things out, we can get a bit of return, we can maybe understand a little bit about what God's doing, But really, we're missing it if we don't zoom out and see the big picture. And as we get to the end of Exodus chapter 17, and certainly Exodus 18, it is one of those passages. There's lots of good stuff to be gleaned from these two chapters here. But unless we zoom out and see the big picture, we'll really miss what God is doing in this moment. As we read through, and if you've read it before you'll see uh, these little uh, parts in the middle of the Exodus story feel just a little bit out of place. Like think of the journey that we've been on so far. Think of God liberating his people dramatically from slavery in Egypt. Think about him uh, doing what he's done in just saving his people uh, through the plagues. Hey, Brent. Um, Think about what he's done in uh, that great act of deliverance. Think about the Passover and just all of the wonder that we saw at the Passover. Think about what he's just done in bringing his people through the Red Sea and saving them, bringing to the other side. Think of last week as we saw him literally rain bread from heaven and bring water from a rock. And then we get to this chapter and it feels like just a bit out of place. We've got a family reunion and a bit of a leadership convention going on. It just doesn't quite feel like it fits with all of the epic narrative that we've had so far. But if we zoom out and see really what God is showing us in this chapter, we'll see that there's so much more going on than that. In fact, you won't see it yet, but as we journey through, hopefully you will. Chapter 17, chapter 18... This is actually the high point of the Exodus story. This is the the climax of the Exodus story. As we unpack it, we will see really what the Exodus story is all about. We'll see that the goal of salvation and the goal of those who have been saved is for the nations to worship Jesus. That is the reason that God saves sinners. 
when we are saved, when we are liberated from our slavery to sin and our slavery to death, God is doing a wonderful thing. But the ultimate purpose goes beyond our salvation. The ultimate purpose in God saving sinners like us is worship. Our worship, God wants us to tear down our idols. He wants us to give ourselves completely to God. But he wants that worship to spread. He wants other people to be brought into that worship. He's calling us and the nations around us into worship. He wants us to gladly to submit to his son as our Lord and our saviour. He wants us to walk in obedience to his ways all of our lives. And that might sound like maybe walking back into slavery a little bit, but it isn't. Worship of God is true freedom. Worship of God is a life of true joy. Worship of God is bringing ourselves into into a family where there is unconditional love. Worship of God is bringing ourselves into a family where our Father delights in us, no matter what we've done. Worship of God brings us into a place of unending peace. That is the world that we all want. That is the world that every one of us craves, every single human being. It doesn't matter if we're believers here this afternoon or not. We all crave that. We all want a family who loves us. We all want a parent who delights in us. We all want the unconditional love when we mess up and screw up. That is what we want. That is what the heart craves for. And we find that in a life of submission to Christ and in a life of worship to God. Worship is true freedom. But folks, that kind of life that we all desire, that kind of life is not our default. In fact, the life that we come into as we are born into this world is a life where we are outside of that relationship that we need with God. We all come into this world and our default position is not that we are sons and daughters of the living God brought into his family. Our default position is that we are enemies of God. We stand opposed to God, not in adoration of him. And because that is who we are outside of God, the first thing that we'll see in this passage here is God is going to judge his enemies. Our default position outside of God is that we are his enemies and that means that we stand as those under his judgment. At the end of chapter 17, if you're there in your Bibles, we see in clear as pictures we can get that the future of those who are opposed to God is a future of death and judgment. So just to catch up on the narrative, if you remember last week, we finished off in Rephidim. So God's people have come and they've camped and they're thirsty and God has brought water to them out of the rock. They're sitting, they're camped in Rephidim. And verse 8 of chapter 17, Moses tells us the Amalekites come down to attack God's people. Now, the Amalekites are one of the enemies of God's people. They're going to continue to pop up through the Old Testament as those who are opposed to God, opposed to his people. They are the enemies of God. Now, when we read the Old Testament, when we read the Bible, we need to see whenever we read of a a people group, a nation like this, who are enemies of God, we need to read ourselves into the story. If we are outside of God, if we're not in relation to God, that is who we are. We are God's enemies. We shall picture ourselves in the story as the Amalekites. Now, all of the incredible works that God has been doing so far, all through these previous 16 chapters, all the works that he's been undertaking for Israel, all of this work of salvation and and all of the glory that we've seen, the nations have been watching. They've been watching God's hand 
and they are intimidated. The power of God has been real before them and they feel threatened. And folks, that is how we feel about God when we're outside of a relationship with him. We feel threatened by God. We have our way of living. We have our interpretation of what freedom looks like. We have our way that looks like the best life that we can live. And God threatens that. When he says, no, follow me. When he says, deny yourself and pick up your cross, that threatens our way of life. So Moses tells Joshua, when he sees that the the armies are gathering, he tells Joshua, who's one of his leaders, to gather an army together to fight. And in verse 9 of chapter 17, he says, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And that's what he does. The next day, Moses goes out. He stands on the hill. Joshua is down in the valley with all of God's people. They brought together this army to fight against the armies of the Amalekites. And Moses is there with his arms stretched out wide, with one hand uh, uh, clenched firmly to this staff. And for as long as his hands are up, the Israelites win. But he's an older guy. And to be fair, he's doing this for the whole day. Like you try and do that just for a few minutes and it gets a bit tiresome. Moses is standing there, an older guy, trying to keep his hands up. He sees that God's people are winning, but he's getting tired and his arms start to droop. And as his arms droop, the Amalekites start winning. And so quickly the guys gather around a few rocks and they build a bit of a rock pile so that Moses can prop his arms up. And that's what he does for the rest of the day. His arms are up with the staff out. And as, sun, as the sun goes down at the end of the day, God's people claim victory over the Amalekites. Now, the staff is important here. Remember, we've seen this before, right? And every time we see Moses' staff, it is a picture of God's judgment. Remember that? Each time we see it, it's a picture that God brings judgment right and just judgment over his enemies. Moses holds his hands up. And judgment isn't complete until his hands come down. And the judgment on the Amalekites is total and it is complete. God judges them with death. He, he wipes out those that are there. And what we see here in the picture of the Amalekites, what we see in the picture of God's enemies here, is a picture of God's judgment towards those who are opposed to him. God doesn't bring his hand of judgment down until judgment is complete. What we see in how God treats the Amalekites here is a picture of the future and the destiny for all of those who are opposed to God, for all of those who are outside of a relationship with God. That is the future and that is the destiny for you. Judgment and death. But here's the good news. God also saves his enemies. See, the second thing that we see in this passage is God will save his enemies. The judgment on the Amalekites is total and it is terrible. And it is a picture of the destiny that is coming to all of those who stand opposed to God, but it doesn't have to be. When the day is over, verse 15, we read this, Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. He builds an altar on the 
side of the hill on the mountain where he is and he calls it the Lord is my banner. Now, you might know uh, kind of Old Testament history and um, Ryan could talk to us a lot about uh, Roman armies. That's his specialist subject at Mastermind these days. I'd be more than happy to uh, bore you senseless with uh, his knowledge of Rome. But, but back in, in those days in ancient history, uh, what armies would do is they take a banner out with uh, the standard, the flag of whatever nation they were fighting for. And the poor guy who was holding it had to stand at the front of the, the, uh, the armies. He was there. And all the soldiers would look towards the flag. And as they looked towards the banner, as they looked towards the standard, it was like a rallying cry for them. It was their kind of victory that when they looked at the flag, they knew or they had a sense that they were going to win. It's what they followed. It was a sign of victory for them. But in the battle here, the banner, the standard, it isn't held by Joshua in the valley. It's held by Moses on the hill. In fact, there isn't even a flag. Moses says the banner is God. The Lord is my banner. He is our victory. He is the one who we rally behind. He is the one who we look to and will secure victory over our enemies. Remember, God will judge his enemies because of sin and because of rebellion of all of humanity. Our sin, our rebellion, they can't go unpunished. And that is the promise of God because God is a God of justice. He will judge his enemies. But this moment on the hill is a shadow of another promise. Yes, God promises to judge sin and to judge sinners. But God has also promised a way for his enemies to receive mercy instead of judgment. You see, there is another hill and another man with his arms stretched out. And on that hill, as we look at Jesus stretched out on a cross, we see how terrible God's judgment is towards sinners. We see how vast the wrath of God is towards sinners. This day at Rephidim in Exodus 17 is a shadow of what was to come at the cross of Jesus. But at the cross, Jesus doesn't stretch out his arms to pour out judgment on his enemies. Jesus stretches out his arms to take judgment for his enemies. And in his death, Jesus stands in the place of those who deserve punishment and takes it for them. In Jesus' death on the cross, he shows mercy to those who are least deserving. See, the Amalekites, they were outside of God's people. They were what the Bible would call Gentiles. And these Gentiles, those who are outside of God, those who stand opposed to him, judgment pours out on them, but at the cross we see there is another way. There is a way of escape for those who stand opposed to God and it is found in Christ and Christ alone. We see the Amalekites who receive the judgment of God. Braxley, we see a picture of this mercy towards those outside of God in this guy Jethro who we meet in chapter 18. In chapter 18, we're introduced again to Moses' father-in-law. We saw him a few chapters earlier. But Moses specifically makes sure we know who this guy is. Jethro, verse 1, is a priest of Midian. Just like the Amalekites were outside of God's people, the Midianites were outside of God's people. Moses is telling us that Jethro, he's not an Israelite, he's a Gentile. He's outside of God's people. And just like the Amalekites, he is in the same position 
His default is outside. But unlike the Amalekites, we see quite shortly that Jethro's response to God is very different. Look first at verse 8 of chapter 18. Moses comes and he sits down with Jethro, his father-in-law, and he tells him all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Moses and Jethro meet together. uh, Jethro's been looking after uh, Moses' family for a while, but they come and have this little family reunion. And the first thing that uh, Moses wants to do with Jethro is sit him down and tell him all that God has done. And we read there in verse 8 that Moses told Jethro. That word told is actually the same root word as proclaim or what we might say, preach. So Moses gets his father-in-law, sits down and preaches to him. There's a a lesson for us as husbands. That's what we should be doing with our father-in-laws. We should be sitting and sharing all that God has done with them. That's what he does. Jethro gets a little sermon from Moses all about how God worked the impossible and how he saved his people. What we see here and what Moses is doing is really the ultimate purpose of God saving his people from Egypt. See, God's salvation of his people from a a cruel ruler in Egypt was wondrous. It was glorious. But that wasn't the end of God's purpose. God's purpose right from the start, and actually he's told us, he's not been hiding it away. His purpose right from the start of the Exodus story is that his people will be saved from their slavery in order to tell others about his goodness and his godliness. God wants his people to tell others. He doesn't want it to keep us to keep it to ourselves. And that is probably why he gives us such a miraculous, wonderful, wonderful story of salvation so that we would tell it to others. He wants us to tell about his goodness and he wants us to tell about his God- godness. And he said that repeatedly to his people right the way through the Exodus story in chapter 6, verse 7, 8, verse 10, 9, verse 29, 10, verses 1 and 2, 14, verse 4, 14, verse 18. He just repeats this refrain to his people that he wants the nations to know that he is Lord. That is the purpose of the Exodus story. Not that he would just gather the Israelites, but that his glory and his fame would burst out of Israel and it would spread to those around him. He wants others to know that he is Lord. He wants others to know that he is Lord. And then look at how Jethro responds. This Gentile, this one from another nation, this one from outside of God's people, he has this little sermonette from Moses and Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. And out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Here's the good news of salvation. And it delights him. And he joyfully confesses that God is the only God. God saves Israel. God saves his people. God saves you and I if we are his so that his name would be known among the nations. And that is exactly what happens here. Jethro the Midianite knows God and sees him as his Lord. He professes faith. And in verse 12, he brings a burnt offering as an act of worship to God. 
And at the end of verse 12, we see Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. He professes faith, he brings a burnt offering, and he comes together with Aaron and they share a meal in the presence of God. Like, let's not rush past this. This little verse, this picture of two old men coming together in the middle of the desert, sharing a meal in the presence of God. This verse is the climax of the Exodus story. So let's not rush past it. What we see here, a gathering of the nations coming together in the presence of God, enjoying a feast together. That is the purpose of God. And even in the backdrop of God parting the Red Sea and manna and quail just appearing every morning. This is the moment that we should have been waiting for. A meal of worship in the presence of God to which all the nations are invited. Division replaced by unity, enmity replaced with adoration of God. What we see in this simple meal, I really hope you can see it. It's a picture of heaven. In the new creation, Jethro and Aaron All of God's children from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will gather again to feast in his presence in worshipful adoration of him. Can we see how this is what what God has been driving at? He doesn't just want to liberate his people from Egypt just so they can wander through the wilderness and be called his people. He wants to liberate them so that they would bring others in. He wants to gather in the nations like that is the glorious eternal purpose of God. To have the nations around him, seeing him for who he is and declaring his praise and his glory. And how does he do that? Well, the third thing we see is that God draws his enemies to himself through his people. The story of God's salvation in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, is God's means for showing his glory to your colleagues, to your friends, to your family, to your neighbours. All of whom, if they aren't following God, are lined up as his enemies. God God has given us a story to share and he has given us a story to live by. See, in verse 13 of chapter 18, the story shifts again. Moses is having a bit of an issue. All of the people are bringing their problems to him. Now remember, how many people are out in the wilderness? A lot, right? A few million, we've said. And Moses is the guy, like he's the leader. So they're all bringing their problems to him. And Jethro is kind of looking at what's going on. He's like, this isn't good. Like everyone's bringing all of their problems, small problems, like this quail's not as big as his quail, big problems, like they're all coming to Moses and Moses is like, this is going to exhaust you. It's foolish, you need some help. And so he kind of brings some leadership constructs and gives them a little bit of a pep talk and they change things around to to make it so only the, the really big issues come to Moses. But there's something more pertinent that Jethro leads him in. Verse 20 of chapter 18, he says, you need to warn them, warn the people about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. He says, Moses, you've got to teach these people. Oh, bless you. 
You've got to teach these people. You've got to tell them this is the right way to go. You've got to show them this is, this is how God wants us to live. You've got to really teach them and model them. This is the right way to live. This is the path to human flourishing, to do what God has called us to do, to walk in his commands. And Jethro says, when you do that, this is what will happen. Verse 23, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. Jethro says, when God's people live according to God's ways, they will find peace. They will find satisfaction. They will find human flourishing when we submit to God's law. And then the next three weeks, as we work our way through the end of chapter 19, chapter 20, we're going to see the Ten Commandments. These laws that God brings to his people. Laws to live by, laws to shape them. Before we get there, God is going to really drive this point with Israel. Living according to my laws, following my commands, that isn't just about us. It's about them. Living in the way that God has called us to live liberty isn't just so we can live good lives and we can say, yes, we're obedient to God. It isn't just so we can be a holy huddle. Living in the way that God has called us to live is also about the people outside of these four walls who are currently lined up as enemies of God. God saves us to show us his glory and he saves us to show through us his glory. See, in chapter 19, in verse 2, you might remember it, but back in chapter 3, verse 12, there is a promise that is given to Moses. It's the first promise he has. God says in in chapter three that he's going to free his people from slavery to worship him at Sinai. And in chapter 19, verse two, we see the fulfillment of that promise. They're there. They've reached the the bottom of Mount Sinai. They're there ready to worship him. God has freed them. He hasn't just freed them to be free. Listen to what he says in verse four, chapter 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God hasn't just saved them to be free. He saved them to send them into the world. As we read Israel here, Israel, a picture of the church, we share the same call. We have been called, just like Israel, have to be this particular type of people that God is going to use to show his glory to and show his glory through. And in fact, you'll have heard these verses before, right? In the New Testament, you'll know probably that Peter quotes word for word almost. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it's up on the screen here. This is what Peter says. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Your God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but you have received mercy. Peter is saying, remember, you were once enemies of God. You were once those who were under his judgment. There was no mercy for you. You were once outside the promises of God, but now you are not. You are the people of God. You have received mercy. All of the judgment that was due for you has been poured out on the man on the cross who had his arms stretched out. All of the judgment that was due for you went on the innocent one. You've received the mercy of God. 
so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of that darkness into his wonderful light. And he calls us some specific things, both in chapter 19 of Exodus and as Peter quotes it again in his letter to the church. He calls them his treasured possession. We're a chosen people. We're a special people. We're his treasured possession. That word kind of treasured, the picture of of a treasury there in the Old Testament. It's a picture of as a a king would, would have all of their gold and all of their riches in a treasury. That is how God views us. We're his treasures. He loves us. He has chosen us. We are his special possession, Peter says as he quotes it. They are chosen from the world, but they are also chosen for the world as God's people. And so are we. Now he's going to call them to live in a certain way. But but I want us just to sit here for a minute and hear this. All of us, if we're believers, hear this. Hear how God sees you. You're treasured. You're special. You're chosen. I love how God says it to Zephaniah. He He says he takes great delight in you. He says he renews you with his love. He says he shouts over you. He sings over you with joy. (laughs) That's who you are. That's who you are. That's how the Father sees you. And there'll be all sorts of voices and we'll be engaged in all sorts of relationships which will tell us we are this, we are that. Just turn the volume down on those for a minute. And turn the volume up on God. Because that's who really matters. I delight in you, son. And by the way, this is the first thing he says before we even do anything. Before we even prove ourselves. I delight in you. I take joy in you. I sing over you. You're my special possession treasure you I've chosen you so when the world says we're worthless when the world says we have no value tell it to shut up and listen to God he loves you he delights in you he treasures you we're his treasured possession we're a kingdom of priests See, ancient priests would represent their gods to their people and they would represent their people to their gods. Israel were called to represent God to the world through their mission and to represent the people to God through their intercession. And so are we. We're called to go out and be missionaries. We're called to go out and show God and show all that he has done to the world around us. And we're called to bring the lost and to bring God's enemies up to God in prayer and intercession. To plead for them on their behalf. To plead that God would be merciful to the lost. That is what priests would do. They would intercede and then priests would also represent and that is what we do. I use this quote a lot, but I love it because it's so helpful. Leslie Newbigin says the church is to be the hermeneutic of the gospel. What he means by that hermeneutic is just a way that we understand something. It's the lens through which we see something. So imagine, imagine the skies are the glory of God. Like the church is like the telescope. 
And we want people to look through that telescope and see the glory and the beauty of who God is. That is who the church is called to be. We're not called just to sit and listen to God's word and then come back again on Sunday or gather in our homes just on Wednesday. No, we're to take that message and we're to live it out and we're to share it with those around us. And we're to cry out to God and plead with him that he would bring others into his people so that they would own that message as well. We're a chosen people treasure possession we're a kingdom of priests and then we are called the holy nation and we're going to look at this more next week as we just move further into chapter 19 but i just wanted to see this briefly they're called to be holy as god is holy and holiness is really god's distinctiveness it's it's his his just being totally set apart to everything else he is distinct he is set apart and that is who the church are called to be we are called to reflect God's distinctive character to the world around us and to be a light to the nations. Folks, you know, as we're building relationships and we're working to do that and we're uh, just connecting with people in our communities, with our neighbours, with our friends, we need to know that what will attract them to the good news of the gospel isn't our sameness, it's our distinctiveness. Did you hear that? It's not us being the same as them that will attract them to the good news of the gospel. It's what's different about us. It's our distinctiveness. So let's not waste all of our energy trying to dress like them, speak like them, drink the same coffee as them. You know, they're all good things. It's good to try and connect with people and to love the things that they love. But really what is going to make the difference is how we are different. How we run to hope instead of fear in the midst of turmoil. How we have this crazy joy in the midst of suffering. How we bank all our hope in eternity, not in this life here. How we use our resources, we've talked about this recently, in radical ways that just look crazy. It's our distinctiveness that will call people towards the gospel, not our sameness. And so let me take us back to the start. Back to that poor, unfortunate cyclist. Let's just zoom out for a minute and see the big picture. Why does God save sinners? Just so that we'd be saved and we can wait for eternity and enjoy all the goodness of the new creation when we get there? No. That's part of it. God saves sinners so that the nations will know that Jesus is Lord. And so that those nations will make him known to other nations. And those nations will make him known to other nations. God rescues us from the nations for the nations. Here is the great ambition of God as we get to the end of Scripture in Revelation chapter 5. This is the vision and this is what we'll see. There is a vision. John sees this. You are worthy to take the scroll. This is the song that is sung over Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. That is the eternal glorious purpose of God. To bring a people to himself from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. 
Jesus died to purchase a people from the nations. He dies on a hill. He suffers our death for us. And he died that he might, we might become a kingdom of priests. That we might make him known to the nations. That is who we are if we're his people. We're chosen. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation so that we may declare his excellencies. And so the people that God has put us around, our neighbours, our friends, our colleagues, the people that we sit next to as we eat, as we drink our coffee through the week, God has sent us to those people. And he has called us to live distinctively amongst them and to pray, hopefully, that their destiny, that their future would not be an Amalekite future, one of judgment and death. For it would be a Jethro future. A one of joy and delight. And confessing God as their Lord. Let's pray.